This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by EDGE, the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue next. EDGE is the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. EDGE gives every dairy farmer a progressive voice in matters critical to their business and the dairy community. EDGE provides leading-edge member representation and addresses farmers' diverse needs and challenges. EDGE is an energetic, forward-thinking organization representing all farmers equally, recognizing both the differences and similarities in farms, regardless of size, business goals, geography, and ownership. Now more than ever, dairy farmers need to be heard. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. While the agriculture industry anxiously awaits the crafting of a new farm bill, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says pending tax reform would help the financial plight of the nation's farmers and ranchers. And I think agriculture is a major part of the U.S. economy. And for all businesses, I believe this will help jumpstart the American economy as well as the ag economy because While farmers are wonderful people and great providing us food security, they're businesses as well, and they have to make a profit to stay in business, and uh, part of that uh, expenditure is the, and the regulation are taxes. So they're going to benefit the way the whole economy will be through the pass-through rates. I don't think it's my role in the executive branch to try to tell Congress how to do that. Farmers are pretty excited about a lot of provisions in there. Simplification, lower rates, being able to expense their equipment uh, more quickly, and certainly the one that's always been kind of that hated tax, the, the double taxation on the states or the death tax. So uh, these are things that are very important to farmers, but frankly, lower rates, the pass-through, simplification, and being able to write off expenses are, are some of the favorites. Some of the numbers that have come for your department recently show improved net farm income, livestock better compensating for some weakness in grains. How do you see returns to farmers as we finish 17 and look ahead to 18? Well, obviously, we're still very concerned about commodity prices. While 17 probably will be a little bit better than 16, we would love to see more progress there. And one of the ways we're trying to do that is to get around the world and to sell more products. We've had beneficial reports on exports moving up in 17. We hope they'll be better in 18, but we're trying to sell this great productivity increase that our American farmers have had. With regard to a forecast, do you see 18 as better? We are thinking that 18 will be somewhat better. We've had fairly good global growing weather over the last four or five years, which has led to high global stocks. But I think anyone in the commodity business, farmers know that the the cure for low prices are low prices and the cure for high prices are high prices. So we think the demand is going to increase based on the on the great value that American commodities have been over the last couple of years. You recorded last week in a story supporting the president's position on NAFTA, and I think the quote that stood out was that he knows what he's doing. Agriculture groups really concerned about our stand on NAFTA. I understand the anxiety based on some of the public comments the president has uh, has made, but frankly, 
I trust the president. He's a tough negotiator, and he means well for America and American farmers. And while there may be some anxiety and some nervousness, legitimate nervousness uh, over that, I think we will get a better deal going forward for American producers with Canada and Mexico. And I think we've laid some issues on the table. He's very serious about that. But the president is he's, hes a very serious, tough negotiator, and he's going to hold to his guns. Bob Lighthizer has suggested recently that uh, he's really concerned in the fact that we did lay some very, very heavy requests on to Canada and to Mexico, and they didn't respond. And he says without rebalancing, there's not going to be a deal. What would hold the Canadians and Mexicans back from responding to a tough negotiating line? Well, again, I think trade negotiations are somewhat like legislature, almost like my Christmas shopping. It never gets done until the end. And I think there's no reason for people to give on these things early on. Uh, I think they understand how serious we are, how serious the president is. And I believe ultimately we'll see some of these things resolved, really on both sides. I mean, we, we put on the table everything we would like. It's up to them to put on the table what they would like, but uh, the president's very serious about enforcing uh, unfair trade uh, agreements that he thinks that the U.S. has been a victim to over the years. I'd like to look specifically at Mexico, if we can. In the period between January and October uh, of last year, Mexico imported 151,000 metric tons of yellow corn from both Brazil and Argentina. This year, the same 10-month period, that figures over 400,000. Now, we've not pulled out of NAFTA, but either the shifting of the market or the conversation that has come, many of their buyers now don't see us as a reliable source. Well, again, I think that's some of the anxiety, not only for our producers, but also for some of our customers. And if you're Mexico and you hear the kind of comments that you've had, you're probably going to look for another vendor as well. Ultimately, we have a tremendous advantage logistically with Mexico, both on a production side and a transportation side. Once we get an agreement in place, they will be a customer that I do not believe that uh, Argentina and Brazil can really truly compete with in the long term. Let's shift to another uh, portion of policy. As I recall, you have fulfilled the promise now that you made to some youngsters with regarding nutrition standards and the taste of the food that's served at the uh, meals that they have at school. Well, we have, and we uh, issued our interim final rules the other day regarding the whole grains and the salt. Uh, we've, we've stayed that where it is. And then the, the biggest thing we get is some flavored milk that can include 1% fat in it. And what we were finding, and the reason for that is we're all for healthy eating. We're also for healthy exercising where most of the childhood obesity comes from is not enough activity. But what was happening in our schools and the data proves it and our school nutrition professionals know it, those uh, those meals with whole grain pasta were going directly into the trash can. So it can't be very nutritious or healthy if it's not being eaten. Those same kids that were not eating school lunch uh, were stopping by on fast food restaurants and convenience stores on the way home loading up on sugar and calories as well as salt and chips. What about portion sizes? Portion sizes need to be uh, for healthy kids, growing kids. They need to be ample. I don't think, again, the 
from a standpoint, I trust the school nutritional professionals to know what kids need to eat more so than the bureaucrats here in Washington. And that's really what we're trying to do is to give them the flexibility to provide good, nutritious, healthy, but tasty foods for their students and allow them to benefit from that. If you've ever been a parent or a grandparent, you understand this balance. Under the previous administration in a, in a discussion on this topic, it was said that the lunchroom is also a classroom where there's a responsibility to teach kids to eat. But if they're not eating and food is going to waste, then something has to be done. You and I both know that if kids don't eat what mom puts on the table at at home, there are going to be some adjustments made. You may have a few parents who say, well, you're not going to get anything until you eat that. But by and large, mothers are great about adjusting to what their kids like. And at schools, they had no flexibility to do that. The standards, while well-intentioned, really had the unintended consequences of kids eating less healthy, wholesome, nutritious foods by putting them in the trash can where they were not tasty. You've got to have all of us respond to that. We're not going to eat something day in and day out that doesn't taste good to us. And the challenges that we had on these dietary guidelines sometimes went above the opportunity and the ability for lunchroom professionals to make a tasty meal. Mr. Secretary, you have done a tremendous amount of work with the Department of Agriculture and your tenure there thus far, and you're doing it with a skeleton staff. How many positions are open, and are there hopes that here in the latter stages of 17 or certainly in early 18 that you can uh, have more seats filled at the department? Well, we certainly hope so. We have less than half of our uh, undersecretary positions here. These are very important positions, food safety, uh, research and education, Forest Service, those kind of things like that that need good leadership. We've got some great career employees in USDA. They're doing a wonderful job. I don't have this deep ideological partisan state here at USDA like some agencies have, but these people need direction. They need to to press the culture on down of our data-driven, facts-based, customer-focused mission here at USDA. How far along are you with the reorganization of the department? I know you've made some changes on rural development, and with regard to conservation and the Farm Service Agency, I know there's some changes that are there that are still pending. Well, there are, but we've made a lot of progress already, but I'm one of a, of continuing improvement. That's why I need these leadership positions filled so that we can adjust. We're looking for the right sizing of USDA out in the field with FSA, with NRCS. We've had some attritions uh, and retirements, and with the hiring freeze, we've got some gaps across America today. We've got to get the right people in the right place to provide the right customer service that farmers need. So we're anxious to get that done. That's why I need Bill Northey on board that will head up that agency with FSA and NRCS, as well as crop insurance. With the Farm Bill coming along, it's also important to have this leadership in place where they can testify to Congress and and give our missions and our motives and where we want to be. I've committed to Congress, and I'm willing to be held accountable to this, that I want USDA to be the most effective, the most efficient, the most customer-focused federal agency in the United States government. Aside from Bill Northey, what are the other priorities that you need Congress to act quickly? Obviously, Bill Northey, we need a general counsel. We've had a general counsel go up for a committee hearing, and uh, we need him to be passed so we can move along uh, with all the reorganization effort. It's very important, obviously, to do things legally in the government, and while he's acting now, I need him here 
to be affirmed. We also need uh, someone in food safety. We need someone in our forest service. And we need someone in our food nutrition service. So all these areas, as well as research and education. So all these areas are important. USDA is a very broad, vast, deep, wide organization that affects almost every American citizen in some way or another. And it takes people to lead these agencies. As I said, our acting careers have done a wonderful job. But uh, that's why you have these positions in order to press down the mission and the culture that's required to make change globally. Are services to farmers being affected by the short staff? I think in some areas, unfortunately, yes. I think we've had some uh, retirements and some uh, attrition out there, and we probably don't have the right people in the right place uh, to give the right customer service right now, and that's why I do need these people here so we can get that done. We tried to do it with what we call jump teams. We're in the Dakotas this summer with filing for disaster and where we've had in Michigan with some issues. We've tried to send people in to help out, but we don't want to deal with temporary. We want the right people, the right number, and the right technical expertise in place so farmers can be assured that they've got a relationship with someone at FSA and NRCS that it has their best interest in mind. The renewable fuel standard falls under the leadership of the EPA and Administrator Scott Pruitt. But if you were talking about the renewable fuel standard and offering advice on that, do you see a need for change? Well, again, I think uh, the, the numbers that came out last week are the appropriate numbers. It reflects the president's commitment that he made during the campaign to the RFS standards, and it helps our corn producers. But also, there is a need, there's a challenge that Senator Cruz is concerned about, and many of the, uh, in the oil-producing states, over REN prices. Those are those certificates that are compliance certificates with the re- renewable standard, and we need to find a way to make that market more transparent and make it less burdensome and less expensive for our uh, refineries as well. Would you support being able to sell E15 year-round? I would, yes, personally, certainly. I think that's one opportunity, frankly, that could increase REN prices is to uh, give the same waiver on E15 that we have for E10. I'm told by more than one leader on either the House or the Senate Agriculture Committee that the big challenge in writing the 18 Farm Bill is going to be money. What of the need for cotton and for dairy, and how important to have a budget that might provide some extra funds for those two commodity groups? Well, obviously, I don't fully understand the CBO scoring and the restrictions that the appropriators have to deal with in constructing the farm bill. Uh, My goal is to provide the most needed policies out here. Obviously, dairy and cotton are two areas where it did not fare as well in the 14 Farm Bill as others may have, and we hope to rectify both of those. We're working with both the ag committees and ag appropriators to help understand where there may be money in the USDA that can be redirected to those programs, but uh, hopefully we can get that done. It's, It's very much needed. And I think becoming more expected among the industry, and I'm hoping we can balance those up. They came very close, actually, with an agreement in the 17 omnibus, and that was derailed at the last moment. Do you see any reason that farm and nutrition programs should be split apart in the the deliberation on the 18 policy? I don't think that would be a good idea, frankly, and I think most people don't think it would be. There's been a great coalition of food nutrition people as well as uh, farm bill people that have come together to support the farm bill. Many conservatives on the far side think that 
The Farm Bill safety net's not needed. I disagree with them. There are people also on the conservative side that say the food nutrition program's not needed. So uh, I think, again, it's better right now. I think the uh, alliance that's been developed over a number of years uh, makes sense, and I hope that we can continue to see that. I don't see any effort on the administration to bifurcate those. I think you probably will see some effort after the tax bill's passed over some comprehensive welfare reform. In addition to all of your responsibility at the Department of Agriculture, you've chaired the Rural Prosperity Task Force, and I understand that report is now to the White House. Was there any central theme that developed or any particular area that was clear that needed to be concentrated on? I think so. I think what I hear over and over, and we're working on all these issues, is trade, labor, farm labor, and uh, and regulation. The president has been very aggressive in a deregulatory environment, and we're working on that. We've submitted our deregulatory ideas to OMB for their approval. Obviously, with Undersecretary McKinney traveling around the world on trade, we're doing everything we can to support the sale of agricultural products internationally. But uh, again, we're working with uh, Chairman Goodlatte on the House on the farm labor issue. Uh, That's a critical need for American agriculture, and we hope to have a legal farm workforce bill here in the near future that farmers could depend on and uh, providing uh, a workforce that they, they need every day. How's progress on the biotech disclosure regulations? We're working on those. We have, uh, obviously, on the labeling issues uh, until next June. We will meet that timeline. It's a it's a tight timeline on these regulatory and rules that probably astounded me with how, how complex they were. But our people are working on them. It requires cooperation, certainly with OMB, who has to sign off on these rules and regulations, as well as FDA, who has also a part in the food labeling issues. So we're trying to work in sync with both OMB and FDA to get reasonable rules promulgated by the deadline. The Brazilians would like to be able to sell more beef to the U.S. What process have we followed and will we follow in opening our borders again? What we try to follow is appropriate equivalency tests from our food safety. As you well know and your listeners know, food safety is a zero-tolerance Uh, proposal. Brazil has had some challenges internally with their food inspection. We're trying to help them actually in coming up to equivalent standards to the U.S. so that our consumers can be confident if they uh, consume any beef from Brazil, it has the same level of inspection that USDA examined beef would have. Uh, I think they're probably not going to break into this market very much, but our goal when we look for other countries to respect our inspections, we have to be reciprocal in respecting the other nations in that way. And we have been several trips, and I've talked to uh, the Minister of Agriculture in Brazil on several occasions. They understand they're trying to get their act together that would qualify, and that's yet to be determined, but we'll see. Uh, I think they're making progress. We'll see how that progresses. Mr. Secretary, we want to thank you very much in this busy season and holiday season for taking time to spend with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you have the last word. Well, you're very kind. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with your listeners. Obviously, I indicated earlier, our goal with USDA is to provide uh, the best customer service we can across the whole spectrum of responsibilities, and it's very important for us to communicate directly with your listeners and 
affording us this opportunity in this time period is uh, is very important. I want to just tell your listeners that if they have ideas of where we're not meeting our our aspirations and our goals of being the best, and uh, I hope they'll communicate with us. We want feedback. We're not going to be defensive about uh, why we didn't do something. If we missed the mark, we want to know about it, but I can assure you that our goal is to be the best. That's not by uh, our acclamation, but we want our customers to be able to say that about us at the end of the day. So thank you very much. hope you and your listeners have a wonderful Merry Christmas. Our thanks to U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by EDGE, the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Kelly.